Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Levin. We have a large, boisterous, late arriving. Yeah, Dan already said good morning, but hasn't had the effect. Welcome to Pietro Korean Rounds. It's a large, boisterous, late arriving crowd, maybe because of the snow this morning, but we should get started um, for our speaker to have adequate, uh, adequate time. So welcome to February. Happy February 1st. Happy um, Red Day. I didn't get the memo, but I do have a red tie for Women's Heart Health. It's Women Heart, Women's Heart Health Month in February. And um, we are kicking off sort of our graduating, um, um, our graduating trainees with Dr. Sullivan. But next week, you may notice we also have uh, a provocative lecture it's going to come through here in a second how, how Dutch babies die by Heather Jones one of our first our first graduating residents so um, make sure to come on back as you're seeing the propaganda slide and I'll change that in a second you might be interested in that graph that keeps floating by and that's the time out the door for the ICN transport team so we've done a lot of impressive work and really uh, the ICN team I hope is here for Kate uh, I don't see Allison Winchester, but Allison is, um, has led an ICN transport program that has gone from a three-person to a two-person team. Um, some of us might remember the days, Nina and I at least remember the days when house staff would be on those teams, but um, to be more efficient and effective, two-person teams were introduced. And so um, there was an average launch time before the two-person team was 63 minutes. It had gotten down to 33 minutes out the door, and then more recently, Allison, who leads that group, went through a rapid, pro rapid process improvement work and has gotten the time out the door to 22 minutes, with half of those teams leaving from time to call in less than 20 minutes. So fast, impressive work done by Allison and the team over cycles of quality improvement. The, the two-person team, which has been several years in the making, and then more recently, uh, uh, Steve really wanted to make sure we met the needs of our referring hospitals and getting the team out the door more quickly. So thanks and congratulations to Allison and everyone in the ICN. So as I change our slides, she is in the ICN this morning. We will... We will get two slides up for Dr. Sullivan. We've been working on the one small slide, but we've got the two projector screens uh, so you can all see uh, Dr. Sullivan's slides. So we welcome back Dr. Sullivan to the podium uh, here as she previously presented uh, upon graduation from our residency in 2014, I want to say. 2012, thank you. I got my dates wrong, in 2012. So uh, a native of Vermont, correct, Kate? Dr. Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is a um, graduate of Princeton University undergraduate and uh, received her medical and master's degrees from Georgetown University. Uh, joined us, uh, as she pointed out, for our residency here at Chad, graduating in 2012. She started neonatology training in New York at Cornell Weill New York Presbyterian Hospital, but we were fortunate to have her return here to complete the bulk of her neonatology training, uh, which is culminating 
today. Uh, Kate's uh, tenure, as we know, of residency and fellowship has been marked by uh, academic rigor. She uh, was an Alpha Omega Alpha in medical school, and um, during both medical school and residency and into fellowship has presented already six posters, has uh, publications in the works, and um, I think many of us have seen really high-level work when we've joined her for the M&M, the neonatal M&M uh, series that she's helped coordinate and has presented a, a large number of impressive uh, presentations. So today she's going to update us on some of her newer work, and uh, we welcome her. She will be joining the faculty at the University of Massachusetts uh, in the coming months to uh, join the neonatology section there and continue her good work. Okay. Thank you so much, Keith, and thank you for having me here. Um, I think you all know me well enough to know that I don't relish talking in front of large crowds, but I'm really excited uh, to share this with you, and I think you all know how much I love uh, taking care of babies, So, and you all have helped me with that, so I'm really happy to talk to you about this today. So this is my uh, title, which my husband, who is a writer, mocked for its blatant plagiarism on so many levels. Um, so really, this is just my reflection on what I'm doing with my life is probably a better title. Um, so our goals for today is to review some of what is known about the overall outcomes for extremely premature infants, examine whether those outcomes are actually valid, and discuss what other outcomes may be more useful for both families and providers in caring for these babies. And then I'm very excited to talk to you about a research project that we've been doing here at Dartmouth looking at the risk for chronic kidney impairment in former premature infants. So when people talk about neonatal outcomes, uh, if you've gone to a, a consultation or if you've just looked on the web, uh, you might have seen these outcome calculators, they're sometimes called, or I've been corrected, and it's really an estimator, but we'll talk about why that is. And so what you can do is plug in a couple of variables that you might know about the baby. Maybe it's 25 weeks, maybe it's 600 grams for an estimated fetal weight, male, female, twin or not twin, uh, antenatal steroids, and then, uh, voila, you get outcomes. Oops. Not so fast. Um, and like so many great calculators that are online, you can say, oh, well, I know that the risk for survival is 73%, just like you'd calculate uh, an oxygenation index or, you know, a creatinine clearance. Uh, but what I'd like to talk about today is that it's not quite uh, so simple. There's not actually a, a calculation in that same way. So where do these numbers come from? Uh, they come from publications like this, uh, where groups of neonatologists actually look over data from uh, 20 years in this case, looking at 30, almost 35,000 infants from 22 to 28 weeks. And this was done actually at 26 neonatal network centers so these are some of the best tertiary academic care centers in the country, um, comprising about 5% of premature births over these 20 years. And then they show you what the outcomes they get. And so this is survival, uh, broken down by uh, 
gestational age. Do I have a pointer, maybe? Maybe. And so you can see, like, at 23 weeks, you can look across uh, the years and see that by 2011, this was the survival for infants born at 23 weeks. And I've actually put little stars to show you which trends are statistically significant, just for fun. But of course, in neonatology, survival isn't everything. So they also look at some of our important neonatal morbidities. So they look at outcomes like necrotizing enterocolitis, late onset sepsis, uh, of course, BPD, something that here at Dartmouth we've worked very hard at reducing. And so that you can see over the country what are these ranges. And so it's from papers like that that, um, that those calculators or those estimates are, are obtained. So we have a 26-week female infant. And so you should now feel like you have some confidence about what her outcome might be. Or maybe not. But what I'd like to talk about is another story that came out. This paper was really a hot topic in neonatology. It was one of those ones that everybody was talking about on street corners and whispering in call rooms. And what this looked at is actually uh, outcomes, but also variation in treatments seen at these big academic centers. And so what they did is they looked at those same neonatal network hospitals. They looked for the last five years of that paper from 2006 to 2011, looking at about 5,000 infants, the smallest ones, 22 to 26 weeks, and looked at both survival data and neurodevelopmental outcomes. But what they did in addition is they looked at the rates of active treatment, which is something that we don't always talk about in other fields of medicine, but we do a lot in neonatology. So you have to look at which babies did you try to resuscitate. And what this graph shows is actually the percentage, um, let's see, here we go, percentage across the y-axis of babies who had attempted resuscitation across the weeks of gestation. And I don't want you to belabor this too much, but what I get from looking at this graph is that these are human decisions being made by people like you and I, trying to make the best choices that we can, but it's not an absolute. So you can see that some patients are being resuscitated at 22 weeks, and then as you get closer to 23 weeks, a lot more are being resuscitated, and then you can sort of see that stepwise fashion as doctors like you or I or people are saying, well, 22 and 6 is a lot like 23, isn't it? And then you can look at these slides, and this is actually breaking it down a little bit more and showing that by hospital people are making these decisions. So again, you have the proportion of infants receiving any kind of active resuscitation, and then across here are the rates of hospital broken down as hospital individual centers than for the different weeks. So at 22 weeks, you can see that some hospitals are at least attempting resuscitation for 100% of infants, and other hospitals are not doing it at all. 
And the same is true as you go across to 23 weeks, 24, 25, and 26. So you see that although the vast majority of hospitals at 26 weeks are at least attempting resuscitation for all infants, some are only really attempting resuscitation at 50% of those. And I should say that these are infants who, you know, have been excluded severe congenital anomalies or trisomies. So these are just sort of average hospitals. And I'm actually not here to say one is right or one is wrong, but I just think it's interesting. And I'm not sure if there's another part of medicine where you'd say, well, yes, if you go and get uh, your treatment in Indiana for acute leukemia, they're going to offer you chemotherapy. But if you go to you know, Illinois, they're not. I'm not sure if the same thing is true. So then they were able to look at outcomes for those infants, similar to the previous paper, and they broke it down as many things do versus all infants and then again, those who received active treatment of any kind. And the uh, numbers are... I don't expect you to be able to see, but I'm going to show you a little clearer. So here are those babies who actually received active resuscitation of any sort at 22 weeks, 23, 24, and 25, and here are their outcome data. So if you look, there were 78 infants at 22 weeks who received active resuscitation, and only 18 of them survived, so that 23%, like you saw in the previous papers. And again, the same thing for 20, uh, 23 weeks, 33%. 24 weeks is 56%, and then uh, for 25%, 72% survived. And then it also breaks down and gives you, it's not just about surviving, right? We look at our survival with what we say without moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment. And so for 22 weeks, that's only 9%. But I'd like to switch those numbers a little bit. And I'd like to tell you, because in everything in math, it's all about the denominator. So it's 9% of the 78 babies that they attempted resuscitation. But if you look at those same numbers and say how many of these 18 who survived had what we might consider good outcomes, that's 39%. And the same thing here. So although it's only 16% of all babies who had attempted resuscitation, it's actually 48% of those who survived, survived without moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment. So what we would consider neonatology, you know, as good as we can measure it at this point. And I actually don't want to answer whether that's enough or not enough. I just wanted to say that those are very different numbers, 9% versus 39%. And furthermore, that 39 and 62% are not actually that different. Just more things to think about. And this study just highlights the differences in practice regarding initiation of active treatment explains a large amount of the difference in outcomes. And it may mean that when discussing options for resuscitation for families, it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I can tell you, 100% of the time, if you do not attempt to resuscitate a 23-weeker, none of them will survive. But I'm not sure that that gives you a lot of information, because I would say the same is true for a 30-weeker, right? If you don't do anything, dry, warm, stimulate, positive pressure ventilation for a 30-weeker, none of them will survive either, and then they need glucose infusions. And so that's not actually a very interesting question to me. 
you have to see what we do and then discuss that with the families. So what outcomes do we talk about in neonatology? I've sort of started to talk a few, about a few. Of course, death is very important. Uh, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or chronic lung disease, is something that we talk about a lot. And what that actually means is the need for any oxygen at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, which is a very important outcome. But I would say perhaps that a family doesn't actually care if their child stops having oxygen at 35 weeks or 37 weeks. You have to make a mark, but I'm not sure if I was a parent, I really care. Intraventricular hemorrhage periventricular leukomalacia. I don't know why everything in neonatology has to be a three-letter thing, but it does. So retinopathy of prematurity, necrotizing enterocolitis, late onset sepsis, and then, of course, neurodevelopmental impairment. So moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment in all of our uh, long-term studies are talked about as less than the first or less than the second standard deviation below the mean at 18 to 22 months corrected gestational age. And I can tell you that in neonatology, that's like a lifetime. If you get a study that powers out till 22 months, I mean, they might as well just be going to college then. I mean, it's so long. <laughs> But you are all pediatricians and are much wiser, and so you might ask the same thing that this uh, neonatology did, is that is survival and neurodevelopmental impairment at two years of age actually a gold standard that we should be basing everything on? <coughs> So there was a study done uh, and published in 2005 uh, from pediatrics by Maureen Hack, a great, great researcher, uh, looking at whether the Bailey scales of infant development was an accurate reflection of later outcome at school age. Because I can tell you in most neonatology research, the Bailey is sort of what's used as that long-term neurodevelopmental outcome. And so she was able to enroll 330 uh, extremely low birth weight infants, that's less than 1,000 grams, from between 1992 and 1995, uh, the NICU from Rainbow and Babies and Children in Cleveland. And 72% of these infants actually survived until eight years. And she looked at their neurodevelopmental outcomes, both at 20 months and again at eight years. And so what she found was that the mean uh, MDI at 20 months using the Bailey was about 75.6, plus or minus 16, so there's some range. But the mean uh, MPC, or the mental processing composite at eight years using the Kaufman uh, was 87.8. And that's at eight years. And then if you look at eight years neurodevelopmental outcomes for only those children free from major neurologic uh, abnormalities, sort of separating out those children that I've shown you up here, you know, with severe CP, uh, blindness, hearing loss, and look at those children who appear to be more neurologically intact, you find that the um, mean MPC, MPC, see, everything has to be a three-letter thing was 92 versus the, she looked at term normal birth weight controls was 98, which perhaps is not the same as you might have thought starting here at the mean of 75. 
and she looked at how the Bailey's scores compared with the later uh, Kaufman scores. And she found that 39% of the ELBW children had an MDI less than 70, so less than two standard deviations below the mean. But only 16% of them had the similar score at eight years of age. And 67% of children had an MDI less than 85, or less than one standard deviation, versus only 37% uh, at eight years. And then again, if you separate out the neurosensory abnormal and neurosensory normal group, then it still shows that 80% of the normal children who tested less than 70 at 20 months were above this by uh, eight years, so sort of a different way of seeing it. And then again, the same trend uh, was true even for this neurosensory abnormal group. And so although, and this gives you, you know, for everybody who likes statistics, the positive predictive and negative predictive value, Tyler, that's for you. Uh, this, although this may be the gold standard for neurodevelopmental outcomes, perhaps it doesn't necessarily predict those later outcomes as well. So important, but perhaps does not give the entire story. But there have been other studies looking at, say, school-age outcomes for extremely preterm uh, infants. This was a study by Lex Doyle and all out of um, Australia, actually. And what they found was that there were a large group with neurosensory impairment, about 15% again, which is sort of similar for this uh, babies less than 1,000 grams. And he continued to find significantly lower scores in the ELBW group than for the normal birth weight control group. And what was interesting that hadn't always been highlighted was that they had a much, much higher rate of neurobehavioral impairments and highlighted here. So a lot of emotional problems, hyperactivity, poor social interactions, with their peers. And this is, makes me wonder if this might be something that we should be paying more attention to, and how can we help families sort of process and prepare for that. So they have continued to look at these specific behavioral outcomes in extremely low birth weight children. And this was done through parental reports of former ELBW children at eight years. And this looked at uh, 176 uh, normal birth weight children at eight years to be a comparison. And what they found is that these children, uh, the ELBW ones, were significantly more likely to have symptoms of ADHD, anxiety, and Asperger's and autism symptoms. And they were more likely to have neurosensory impairments. Um, and a lot of these, but they were very specific. So they were more likely to have uh, attention disorders, but less likely to have conduct problems. And so why is this, and what could we be uh, counseling families about? And then something that I think is very important is how do these children perceive themselves? And Saroj Sagal is really probably the premier researcher in this uh, field, looked at how these ELBW infants actually saw themselves both at uh, adolescence and at young adulthood. And so she interviewed 143 of these uh, extremely preterm infants, both when they were teenagers and then at 23 years, and compared those to a normal birth weight control. 
And she found that both the teens and the young adults who were former extremely preterm infants, in their self-report, their quality of life was just as good and not significantly different as a control group, even when she asked about health-related quality of life. And so although there were significant and, and, and objective measures of poor function, these young people didn't actually see themselves as having a poor quality of life. And so what I think is really important, and perhaps we should spend more time thinking about, is what consequences of prematurity actually matter to former premature infants and their families? What should we really be designing studies that look at? And how importantly can we counsel families so that they have the best outcome for themselves and their families? And I think that perhaps when you look at this in the literature, you'll see that families actually talk about the behavioral challenges as being some of the most important, ADHD and school problems, uh, not just their IQ, but how they function in school with their peers. Things like feeding aversion and having meals become battles, social problems, exercise tolerance, and their ability to compete at sports, metabolic risk and heart disease, more and more research is being done showing that either as a consequence of what we do in the NICU or as a consequence of their innate prematurity or intrauterine growth restriction, these infants are actually at much higher risk for having metabolic disease, heart disease, and renal disease. And what I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about a project we're doing looking at that renal disease here at uh, Dartmouth. And so this is in the context of a lot of other research that's being done around the country, looking at the idea that prematurity itself or something that we're doing in the NICU is causing a greater risk for chronic kidney disease in these former premature infants. And um, looking at that, you see that there's sort of this theory that you have both prematurity and low birth weight, that a lot of these infants are actually IUGR, and could that be an important component? And then they're exposed to our beautiful, in my opinion, but also slightly harsh NICU environment. So there are nephrotoxic medications that Adam is always quick to mention that we use a lot of. There's infection in and of itself. There's hemodynamic instability and changes. There is acute kidney injury, uh, as we see their creatinine rise after we give one of those beautiful nephrotoxic medications. And perhaps, despite our best efforts, there's suboptimal nutrition, probably not as well as a pregnant woman is actually doing for her baby. And this contributes to this idea of reduced nephron number or oligonephropathy of prematurity. And that leads to a hyperfiltration injury, um, and systemic hypertension and proteinuria, which leads to further chronic kidney disease. So, everybody loves uh, embryology. <laughs> Keith. <laughs> So you will obviously have at the tip of your tongue that the metanephric kidney begins in the fifth week of gestation. And during normal development, this nephrogenesis continues until the 35th week, far after most of our babies, and especially those ELBW babies, have been born. 
And so what is the renal development in the context of prematurity? And this was a paper done uh, a little bit ago from some researchers in Florida looking at how many glomeruli had actually been formed in these extremely preterm babies. And what they found was that infants born at earlier gestational age actually had fewer glomeruli, and that this glomerulogenesis, the formation of new glomeruli, only lasted for 40 days postnatally. And so what does this mean for the infants as they are developing? What this study did was it looked at a group of uh, former premature infants who had known uh, acute kidney injury and sort of severe kidney injury during their NICU course and saw whether it completely resolved or what the consequences were. And they found that they could look at the urine protein creatinine ratio at one year and that had 100% sensitivity to sh predict that these infants would go on to have later chronic kidney disease as young adults. And I think everyone is sufficiently familiar with the research to know that hypertension is also a marker of a later chronic kidney disease. And so what we did here at Dartmouth, starting a few years ago, is we actually looked at a cohort of premature infants here and found that at one year, they had an elevated systolic or diastolic blood pressure in 41% of them at six months, and that that persisted in 29% at 12 months. And interestingly, we also found that there was a male-female difference. So here you have it divided males and females. And at six months, there was about an equal uh, percentage of infants with hypertension. But then here at 12 months, you see that there is a lot higher percentage of males with, with hypertension versus the females. And that's after correcting for uh, illness and prematurity and BPD. Those seem to be something specific about those infants, and we're not sure why this is. But it really sparked more questions. And so the question we asked was, what is the incidence of elevated blood pressure and proteinuria in a population of very premature infants? Those were all infants less than 35 weeks. We wanted to look at those smallest babies and see if we could see any further inf information. And then are there any clinical characteristics, sex, uh, small for gestational age, severity of illness, exposure to different nephrotoxins, uh, that might have an increased risk for this elevated blood pressure and proteinuria. And so we recruited infants from our NICU here and who were followed at the Transla Transitional Long-Term Care Clinic, the TLC. And we looked at babies who were less than 32 weeks or less than 1,500 grams. And we followed their blood pressures uh, at six months and 12 months. And then we actually obtained urine protein creatinine ratios for these infants as well at 12 months. And so far, we've recruited all 61, which was our goal. They have a mean age range from uh, 24 weeks to 32, sorry, with a mean of 28 weeks, mean birth weight of 1,200 grams, evenly split males and females. And looking back at their records, you can see that already 13% had been identified as having some evidence of acute kidney injury during their NICU course. And this wasn't designed to find this. This was just from chart review, if we could look back and see their creatinine rise. 
And our results so far, um, this is an ongoing project. So we have uh, 31 infants who have blood pressures at, uh, at six months and uh, 21 who have had blood pressures taken at six months and 12 months. And this is the range of the blood pressures that we've obtained, with this highlighting being the systolic 95th percentile and the 95th percentile for the diastolic at six months and 12 months. And uh, we are starting to see that more uh, males are having elevated blood pressures than, than female infants, though this is not statistically significant yet. And we are also seeing that uh, there are actually a large number of these infants who seem to have elevated protein-creatinine ratios that would predict them for having chronic kidney disease in the future. So the 0.6 was the range from that previous study I mentioned that predicted long-term uh, chronic kidney disease. And already 16% of the infants have been identified as this. Um, and as I said, a lot of infants seem to have experienced some form of acute kidney injury as well. And so in conclusion, we can see that elevated blood pressure and proteinuria are common findings in former premature infants, and that we know that these clinical findings have been shown to be associated with later development of progressive renal failure in adults, children, and neonates. And so I think that more research is really needed to determine if this risk is modifiable, uh, either during the initial care of these infants or later as we're following them. Should we be giving these children different advice as pediatricians? Should we be saying to use Tylenol and not NSAIDs? Should we be talking about hydration status in a different way as they're getting gastroenteritis, as every child does, um, what should our advice be? Then maybe we could help these children have the best outcomes that they uh, can. So I think that in summary, I'd really like to say that early outcomes are improving for these smallest patients, that our, our survival is getting so much better. But I think that more focus needs to be put into improving not only their early course as they're here with us in the NICU, but in their outcomes both at 18 months and then over the next 18 years as you are all caring for them. So that's really it, and I'd love to talk. I think this is more of a discussion, and thank you so much for having me. So, of course, I mean, Dr. Everything is interesting. So, you said that the families were not, maybe not as um, good at predicting later school behavior, not being the school outcomes. How does the Bailey perform in non uh, premature or non, or is it just a bad test for that population? Or in any kid that gets a Bailey, how long do we do Bailey's on the general you know, I don't want to say it's a bad test. That's not at all what I was trying to say. I was just trying to say more that, can you still hear me? I talk loud, right? Um, that, <laughs> um, that these are not fixed outcomes, that these children are changing. And I didn't have enough time to go into it. I mean, each one of those studies could probably be an hour-long discussion or more. Um, but that these are changing outcomes and that you can't have a closed book and say, oh, this was your outcome at 20 months, and therefore you have neurodevelopmental impairment. And what that study did start to look at was that, in fact, if you stratified looking at socioeconomic status or home life, then 
the infants, unfortunately, from the higher socioeconomic uh, homes, their outcomes improved much more than the infants who were not. And so, you know, we have these babies for you know, two months, four months maybe. I mean, in some cases, almost a year. But that's still a very small percentage of their overall life. And so what should we be doing to make the rest of those 18, 20, 25 years, you know, better? So I think it's less that that's not a good test and more that it's just the first step in that test and that there's more outcomes. And like Betty, Betty Vore has done amazing work looking at how socioeconomic status, home life, uh, percentage of reading to children, you know, after they've left the NICU has way more to do with their overall outcomes at 12 years than anything that we do in the NICU, which is really not a surprise for anyone who's ever interacted with children or been a parent. But I think that sometimes, you know, we get so focused on, you know, what our ventilator pressure should be, which is, is really important, but it's just not the end of the story. Does that answer your question in a roundabout way? <laughs> Nina, who's an expert? So, um, Let's get closer to the mic because these aren't so the only people who are watching. Okay. People on the web. So IQs are not predictive at one year old for, for 18. And so that's not how that test is designed to be used. Um, and so um, and so what you're supposed to describe to parents when you're doing this is it's a description of the here and now when you're doing the Bailey in terms of what they're doing developmentally and it's not At the same time, I think if you look at the fact that when you're doing a test like the Bailey on a one year old, it does take into account some of the things that they then do have difficulty with. So these sort of executive function skills, organizing, getting their attention. And so that the confidence test that they're doing later when they're just getting that one little piece of the score actually isn't taking those other things into account. And so in some ways, it might actually be a fair prediction of how they're doing functionally rather than just working so late. So Kate, are you gonna are you gonna expand? Sorry, I'll jump in here. The um, the hypertension and renal injury study to the population in central Massachusetts. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are excited to do that. Uh, Dr. Ridner. So Kate, we, you know, if, we, if you go back to the beginning of your talk and you think about decisions about who, who we provide care for, or who we support. You know, we base a lot of that information on, I mean, all the estimator gives you is neurodevelopmental outcome. And, and I think, you know, you, you pointed out, you know, some of the nuances and flaws in that. But if you can contrast that with, you know, Maureen Hack's interviews where these kids say, uh, I'm fine. Uh, and your data showing, well, okay, but they've got problems in other organ systems. I mean, how might we sort of integrate backwards to the decision making? In other words, you know, maybe we're way off base, right? We're, we're, we're making those care decisions based on our perceived idea of what really counts. And, and in fact, uh, although you know, there's plenty of issues about who gets studied and who gets interviewed, 
the data suggests that it's not, you know, your neurodevelopmental outcome because the patients themselves are pretty happy with it. I mean, should, should we be completely rejiggering the way we approach really the ethics of resuscitation and care to look at something else? Like kidneys. I mean, I don't, I don't you know. I mean, if you've got a good brain and bad kidneys, you're in trouble. I mean, I just think that. Uh... You know, it's easy as a resident when I was starting out to say, oh, you know, people resuscitate at 23 weeks and they don't resuscitate at 22 weeks or they resuscitate at 24 weeks. Like I, I looked at different programs and I think that what my further training and what all of this just says is that these decisions are never that simple. You know, that you just have to have sort of open conversations with families. And in the same way that when I'm counseling a family saying that, you know, your baby may survive or may not, um, but even if they survive, it's going to be a very long NICU hospitalization. There are going to be ups and downs, and I think we need to be open with them that as they leave the NICU, it's going to be a long course, and there may be complications. There may be you know, processing problems and attention problems. There could be behavioral problems. There could be kidney problems, and that this is something that's going to go with them their entire lives that you know may bring you closer as a family, may be good, may be bad. It's just going to be complicated. As with, I think, anything else where it's a chronic illness, you know, I think that the, the hematology-oncology team does a great job of saying, like, this is a diagnosis that's going to affect you your entire life, that, you know, there are going to be ups, there are going to be downs, there's going to be, it's going to impact siblings, it's not. And that's not a reason to not do chemotherapy. It's just something that you should understand going into your treatment, that this is going to be something that's going to affect you, that, you know, you're right. People who have had childhood cancer have to think about that as they're making their decisions about having children, because do those chemotherapy agents affect reproduction and fertility? That's not a reason to not do chemotherapy. It's just something that you have ongoing conversations with. Dr. Shokin. Yeah, so thank you for asking that question, Dr. Rager, because it's just going to lead into my um, uh, push to have everybody come next week to hear Dr. Jones speak because she went to the Netherlands for a month and looked at Nikki resuscitations there and she has some very interesting and provocative things to say next week about resuscitations in a different culture and a different uh, Nikki world than we have here. Um, and I guess it's a, I don't know if it's a question or a comment, but thank you very much for pointing out that the long-term morbidities may be subtle, they may take a long time to show up, they may not show up very well on the testing. Um, as somebody who takes care of a lot of adolescents, and I have a lot of ex-NICU babies in my practice who are now 16, 17, 18, trying to make that transition to the adult world with subtle neurocognitive um, effects, with executive function disorder, as Nina was saying. And now, should I be talking to them more about other things? Hypertension as an adult. Um, you know, what other things should I be paying attention to as they get older? And my social comment is we do such a poor job of taking those, care of those kids in the community, um, and I, I'm not sure that the funding or social support is there to help those families take care of these complex kids you know, through the schools and through the communities as well as we should. 
I agree. And I think that, you know, what I was hoping to say is that it's not just for those infants who are trached and have G-tubes. It's for the infants who have had good outcomes. Like, we need to be paying attention to them and not saying, oh, yeah, you're fine now. Good luck. Um, and I, I'm not sure, and I'm not saying that as a criticism of neonatologists. I think that in general, neonatologists are intensivists, you know, where we like putting in chest tubes and intubating and managing problems and, and our focus focus is not necessarily how, nor does it necessarily need to be how they're doing when they're 18 and transitioning to living on their own at college, but somebody should be paying attention to that, uh, whether it's us or, or somebody else. Dr. Evans, you could wait in pointing out how complex this whole field is in terms of decision-making. I'm sort of surprised, given the political and social climate right now of life-to-life um, against uh, pro-life versus uh, the other side. Um, I'm surprised that, that the issue that you pointed out in the 22-week variation of practice for active resuscitation where there was zero and 100% resuscitation. But this hasn't come on the radar screen. Our ethics in neonatology is driven by societal sort of mores, not specifically medical outcomes. But if you look at the data as you presented it, at 22 weeks uh, with resuscitation, survival can be as high as around 40%. Um, and there's not that much difference in terms of incidence of handicap between 22 weeks, 23 weeks, 24 weeks. And right now in our hospital, 25 weeks would be, you know, we wouldn't allow a parent to decide against resuscitation. So I'm not going to ask you to answer this. The issue is we're always struggling with here's the gestational age where we would say, Regardless of what parents say, we're not going to resuscitate. And where is the upper gestational age where we would not allow them to say we, we won't resuscitate? So right now it's 25 weeks. 24 weeks is uh, parent can have an uh, informed decision not to resuscitate at 24 weeks. As far as I know, we've not yet attempted to do 22 weeks despite the data that you showed us. Uh, there is no law or anything. The NRP has some guidance talking about futility and, and non-futility. And I recently read an article that I'm sure you've already read that was uh, uh, looking at um, decisions to resuscitate or not in incompetent patients of different ages and different um, uh, you know, problems, including a 24-weeker, where the probability of survival is 50% and looking at people's attitudes and where they would make those decisions. And I will say that the uh, places where people are least likely to actively resuscitate, despite 
other things having much worse outcomes is at 24 weeks and in an 80-year-old comatose patient already with dementia. So it's just interesting sort of looking at our choices that we make in medicine and as a society. I just would say, Tim, that this, this potentially could get on the radar screen because 22 weeks potential survival at, of that degree, it may come under scrutiny of whether we should ever not resuscitate. comments as well. You want it to be more complicated, though? You want computers outside your ICMs, but you, you raise a, a provocative, put a sharper point on it. We currently protect the right of women to choose up to 20 weeks of gestational age to terminate pregnancies. So you're suggesting that you're getting close enough now where you are really uh, inviting the scrutiny of, the, as you say, the, the, the anti-choice or right to life um, um, section. So. Um, I think these are hugely provocative, but I, I think it's best to have Dr. Edwards have the last word and let those who want to continue <laughs> <laughs> give Kate a chance to thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.